Hello, 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 and welcome back to the SLP Corner podcast. Happy Monday! I hope everyone's having a great week. It's almost Halloween, which means it's almost Christmas. (laughs) That is exactly how my mind works, and it drives my boyfriend crazy. But I love Christmas. So anyways, I'm so excited for Halloween, so it's closer to Christmas. I hope everyone is kind of past that busy season. I know September is just crazy. Everyone's sick. Everyone has IEPs. It's just like new clients, new referrals. It's craziness for all SLPs. So I hope everyone's hanging in there and kind of past that really busy season. Speaking of IEPs, I'm inspired. I am inspired to really share something that's been on my mind. So As you know, I had Mrs. PGP on the podcast in the summer, and I'm going to link it in the show notes for you to refer to. It was a great podcast. Mrs. PGP is extremely popular in the autism community, specifically that she advocates for neurodiversity affirming practice. She is very neurodiversity affirming, and she's really like leading the path and leading the way in all of that. I learned a lot from her. I've learned a lot from social media over the past few years. I've learned a lot from different courses, like the Meaningful Speech course. Not that it was directly about neurodiversity, affirming practices, but just these newer courses made by SLPs who are really with it. They are neurodiversity affirming in the first place. So then, of course, what they teach and their strategies are going to be, in turn, neurodiversity affirming as well. So what does it mean to be neurodiversity affirming? Let's just start off there. In a very simple, straightforward way, it's that we believe all brains are beautiful and all brains should be included, respected, and honored. Now, of course, this still means that children need to be taught certain skills that they might be experiencing challenges with, like language delay, for example. But it also means that I'm going to teach that child in a way that they're going to learn best. And I'm not going to try to teach them just so they seem like every other kid. I'm going to try to teach them in a way that they learn best to try to help level the playing field and ensure that they are best suited to tackle everything that they're going to face in life, like school, friendships, emotional ups and downs. I'm not going to try to make a child who might be really quiet, really outgoing and loud. And I'm not going to try to make a child who's really outgoing and very excited and and very vibrant into a child who's really shy and more introverted. I'm not going to try to change a child. So the same thing goes for autism. When we have an autistic child on our caseload, if we're trying to be in a neurodiversity affirming SLP, we might not work on goals such as eye contact because we know from research, we know from, um, I know from firsthand experience, and I think we could all relate to this, just seeing how uncomfortable it can be and how distracting and almost painful it can seem for these kids, but also from autistic adults who are finally getting their voices heard and we're hearing about it, we're talking about it, and they're sharing that, no, actually, I don't learn well when I'm forced to make eye contact. A lot of times, like I've heard different autistic adults say, I can either listen or I can make eye contact. And then it becomes a people-pleasing mentality. We're only teaching things like whole body listening and eye contact just so they seem more neurotypical. That is going against neurodiversity affirming principles. We want to teach them things that will help them learn. We don't want to teach them things just to make them seem more quote-unquote normal. That's not the goal. 
So we don't want to suppress their stims. We don't want to teach compliance at all costs, which can lead to a lot of negative consequences like masking in females on the spectrum. I'll link that one in the show notes as well. We don't want that to be happening. So we need to be really conscious of incorporating neurodiversity affirming practices into our practices as SLPs. And with that comes advocating. And oh my goodness, advocating can be so challenging sometimes. Whew, I, I honestly find that sometimes it can just go so well. And it's one of those things, you know better, you do better. And sometimes it can be really challenging because no one wants to hear that they may be doing something harmful. No one wants to hear that they might be doing something that is an older way of practicing and that we're learning more and we're doing different things now. I mean, even for me, I'll be the first to share on this episode, I had whole body listening goals in my practice my first year of working. Because guess what? I thought it would help the child. So it's not like anyone is doing anything because they're harmful people. Teachers, resource teachers, EAs, BIs, all of these people, they love children. They love working with children. Do they think that these are harmful? No, or they would never be doing it. So it just comes from a lack of education and understanding. And I had that too. And I still have that. I could be saying things and I probably am saying some things that someone else would disagree with. And I want these types of feedback because I want to be the best SLP I can be because I want to help these children as much as I can. Basically, it just comes from a lack of understanding. And like when I found out that these social thinking goals and these social thinking ways of teaching kids could be so harmful, I tried to stop them completely from my practice. I don't want to have a goal for whole body listening now. If we see people like the sensory SLP, Jessie, I had her on a podcast, Jessie Ginsburg. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but she's all about the sensory side of things. And a lot of OTs are so informed about the sensory side of things. And when we look at that side of things, we know actually whole body listening, that's kind of unrealistic, kind of putting a band-aid on what's really going on, which might be either stimming or sensory seeking, which could mean that they need a break or they need some changes in how they're learning at school. So what I've noticed from advocating is, um, like I said, it can really go one of two ways. It can go really well. I'm in a school right now every Tuesday. The resource teacher is fantastic. And she's just like so open to learning and she's just so confident in wanting to know more and she's always saying teach me these things because I'm not an SLP and just like I would need to learn about her job and other people's jobs in their areas I would always trying to get more information from OTs because I'm not an OT and so she's always like let me know these things that are happening in the SLP community because I want to be able to help these kids as much as possible so I can, I can advocate for my clients in that sense um, with her and it's very almost easy. Like I don't even know if that's the right word, but it's just super easy. I share the information. Um, I can back it up if needed with articles, resources, all of that. But overall, um, some people really have that outlook where, oh, you know what? I want to learn more. And I feel like a lot of SLPs are really like that too. Then every now and then you're going to run into some teams that, you know what, it's pretty challenging and I've been there, okay? And and I always I always want to say to myself like if someone didn't receive what I delivered, I need to do better because part of my job as an SLP is counseling and 
advocating and I need to be able to do that for a variety of people, not just the people who are already open. So I know that I'm still a new SLP and I'm going to learn more and I need to practice really being able to try to deliver this information and advocate in a way that would never offend someone or make someone feel like they are doing something wrong because I would never want that to happen. But there are a few times when we're in IEP and I might suggest, oh, can we remove that eye contact goal or can we alter that whole body listening goal? And it's not always taken well. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. We still should. Thankfully, there's resources we can send. Sometimes it helps if it's coming from somewhere else. We should still advocate even if it's hard sometimes. But thankfully, I have a podcast and I can come share all my feelings. This is why I started a podcast to start with and a blog um, and the Instagram because I just, I love SLP. I'm so passionate about it and I'm passionate about learning and that's why I love this field. Like I can always learn more and learn more and I just need a place. I need an outlet, okay? Because... <laughs> When a lot of my friends are SLPs and we're together, we're always like, okay, let's try not to talk about SLP. I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate. Let's just try to talk about something else. It often leads to SLP, but we try. And then my boyfriend, he likes talking about SLP, but like, obviously I'm not going to start venting to him about whole body listening. (laughs) So here we are. I have just spent the last couple hours reading, reading, reading. I have literally read so much on whole body listening and I want to share all of the things that I've learned. So you don't need to do what I just did, which is read so many blogs and get blocked from so many research articles because you don't have the access code. So that is a tough one for me. But anyways, moving along. So what is social thinking? Let's start there. This is not a bashing social thinking podcast at all. Um, This is just my opinion. And sometimes my opinions um, are not others opinions (laughs) so this is just my opinion everyone um and it's also widely accepted in the slp community it's yeah okay moving along i don't want to offend anyone else okay so social thinking is basically a social skills approach to therapy there's a curriculum so there's like book one book two book three every book is for young kids i think they have curriculums for all ages but the one we all know is for younger children And it teaches kids step-by-step basic social skills that we might not see with autism or we might see it differently, keyword differently, which is okay, remember? (laughs) Okay, so for example, some of the books might be whole body listening as a book, all about whole body listening and why it's important. Another book is all about size of the problem. There are small problems, medium problems, big problems. The size of the problem should match the size of the reaction. Then there's a book on expected and unexpected behaviors. On and on and on. Now, some of these books, I'm like, oh, yeah, that kind of, I can see that. For example, there's a book that talks about my eyes are like arrows. And I'm like, you know what? It's so dependent on the context and how you're using it. So for example, if a child isn't social referencing in that maybe a teacher is looking at a corner of the classroom, there's she's saying, everyone go over there and then we will take out our books. And then after that, go back to that side of the room and we will play with our toys. Now, she just referenced two places in the classroom and she probably gazed at them. And a lot of kids who are maybe neurotypical, they see her eyes are looking at another area. They turn around, they reference where she's looking. Oh, she's looking over there. They just got all that information. Now, I find a lot of the times children with autism they are, may not be looking at her eyes and now they miss that piece of information. So sometimes I will 
play games with kids and I'll do my eyes are like arrows hide and seek so they start learning like oh my eyes can give you information that's very helpful in your comprehension of what I'm saying so oh I hit it over there I'm looking at it but I'm not telling them to make sustained eye contact I'm not rewarding them for looking at me while we're talking or anything like that and I'm not teaching them eye contact is so important and it's strange or weird if you don't do that but I am showing them that that is a way people might talk and give you information Mrs. Speechy P always talks about leveling the playing field we want to level the playing field and I want to do that for my autistic clients too so all this to say just like everything in life this is not black and white some things in the social thinking curriculum you can actually twist them around make them your own um, make them kind of helpful to your child on your caseload some of the books might be helpful you do you Um, I think the superflex characters are funny like they can be kind of comical and kids sometimes think they're funny and I can even relate to them as someone who has like anxiety and things like that so I'm not saying every single thing in the social thinking curriculum is bad however there are certain things in it that are harmful and I think what's most harmful is that people using these curriculums are not always trained or knowledgeable in the areas of autism special needs developmental delays so They're using them and they don't really understand them. They don't understand the background. They don't understand all of the ways in which it can be harmful. So we're seeing that show up in classrooms, maybe even parents at home. And it's kind of like the zones of regulation. So I see that show up a lot in classrooms. And I have had a podcast on this where I talk about like, it's not all bad. People are very quick to say, oh, like that's such a bad approach. You shouldn't use that for emotional understanding and emotional regulation. But once again, to me, there's a gray area. Like I use it as a way to show kids it's normal to be in multiple zones at once. But a lot of the other ways it's taught is that it's almost a good thing to be in the green zone. Like you're rewarded if you're in the green zone, which means you're happy, content, ready to learn. That's the green zone. This is problematic because we don't want kids to feel like if they are in the blue zone, sad or sick, the yellow zone, silly, nervous, anxious, or the red zone, angry, yelling, out of control, scared. We don't want them to feel like when they're in the red, blue, or yellow zone, all of a sudden that's bad this is a bad thing and we need to move back to the green zone as soon as possible it's the classic you see a kid crying and you say oh how are you feeling and they go I'm happy and they're crying because these children are learning it's better if I'm happy this is not going to be successful for them in the long term little kids should learn it's okay if I'm sad I can feel that I can move through that emotion and I can maybe be in now all of a sudden two emotions maybe now I'm feeling a little bit tired from crying but I'm feeling calm so I'm in the green zone and that's okay because we don't need to be faking our emotions all the time we can have more emotional awareness and understanding right if we know that we can be in multiple zones at once so that's why I kind of like the zones regulation it just depends how you use it all of this to say Here we are, and we're just going to dive into whole body listening. So whole body listening is basically a phrase to use with children. There's visuals all over the place, and it basically shows them that um, whole body listening means you're not just listening with your ears, you're listening with your hands, your eyes, you're listening with your mouth, your body, which means your hands are quiet in your laps, your legs are still, your mouth is closed, your eyes and ears are both facing the teacher. And then once all of that is happening and you're perfectly sitting still and staring at the teacher, now you are whole body listening and this is praised, rewarded, this is what we want. 
but it's not what we want. But this is what is often said. And I've done it too. But look, now knowing more, it's, 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 I was just going to say toxic. It's toxic. Too much reality TV, you guys. Okay, anyways, of course, there's always going to be the child who can sit perfectly still, staring at the teacher, whole body listening, and they can be soaking it all in, learning so well. But for the majority of children, not just autistic children, for the majority of children, this is going to be very challenging to do both. And I was one of those kids. And my brother was one of those kids too. And I did not do well in elementary school. Thankfully, I ended up doing well um, in at the end of high school and in university. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that I could learn on my own. I didn't do well in the traditional classroom where I had to stare at the teacher and do everything perfectly. And I just, that's not how I learned. So, and I was a neurotypical child and um, my brother had ADHD, but two examples, not autism. And we both did not do well in elementary school because of this reason. I didn't have good marks. People thought, oh no, like what's going to happen to her? It's, I'm an SLP. Everything's going well. But that's because I could finally take control of my own learning later on. But it's th- phrases like this that can really be harmful to kids. And when you're having a hard time listening and focusing and you're supposed to be really perfect and sit so still, and then all of a sudden you can't learn, you don't have good marks, that's such an impact on your confidence and that can have an impact on your entire life. If you start thinking that, oh, I'm, I'm not smart, I can't learn, I can't do what everyone else can do, I can't fit in, this is very problematic and can be very harmful for children moving forward. So... Basically, aside from the neurotypical children it's hard for, let's talk about children who are neurodiverse. Let's talk about autism or children who have sensory processing difficulties or ADHD. It is almost impossible to whole body listen and actually listen, process, integrate the information. Almost impossible and extremely counterproductive because are they really going to be learning anything no they're going to be focusing on trying to sit still it's like for example when you're having a massage or you're getting your nails done or something where your hands are busy and all of a sudden your face is itchy but no you cannot it you cannot scratch your face could you imagine that feeling or you know when you're playing with a pen or you're playing with your hair or you're you're playing with something in your hands and you're talking and someone says can you stop playing with that it's like No, I can't because we all do this to a certain extent, but it shows up more in autism and they have more sensory processing difficulties and they have more sensory seeking. Let's talk about stimming because a lot of the times what autistic individuals call whole body listening is stim suppression. And I really like this because I think that it is blunt to the point and it really catches people's attention because when I first read stim suppression, I was like, oh my God goodness, I I don't ever want to be suppressing a child's stims. Let's talk about stimming. So stimming are behaviors that are self-regulating and self-soothing. They can be physical, such as fidgeting and hand flapping, clapping or rocking. They can be verbal, such as humming or echolalia. As we know, SLPs, that's repeating the words, phrases, sounds, things like that. It could be visual, like watching sparkle of glitter or a car moving really closely or a door closing and opening or using a fidget spinner. It could be auditory. So listening to the same song or phrases repeatedly. So you'll notice sometimes kids even do that with their talkers. Sometimes they might listen to something over and over again. 
They can also be tactile, so running fingers through the carpet over and over again or touching your finger to a rough part on your jeans, something like that. There's lots of different types of stims, so they can, they really, it can be for any of the senses. Um, getting a lot of this information from, I've uh, quite a few articles, but one is written by an autistic female and it's incredible. I'm going to link it in the description below. Her name is Cassandra Crossman and she's just wonderful. So Cassandra talks about why um, she stims. She talks about her personal experiences and then she talks about why autistic individuals enjoy stimming. So I'm going to be reading a lot from her article just because I honestly couldn't have said it better myself. She says, stimming helps us to relieve anxiety, focus, and express ourselves. So, whoa, covers a lot, okay? Stimming helps us to feel safe when in harsh or unfamiliar sensory environments, like a loud, bright grocery store, a crowded mall. And I'm just going to add crowded classroom that is loud, noisy, busy, bright with those fluorescent lights. Could you imagine? I can't even deal with that. People make fun of me in the clinic, like as a joke, my coworkers, that I always have the lights turned off. So talk about if you have um, sensory sensitivities and then you're in this bright, bright room. I think a lot of introverts can relate to that. There's a great book called Quiet if you're introverted and it talks about how we also have sensory sensitivities as well. Um, and we crave like that lower um, lighting and quieter, quieter atmosphere. Um, so I think we can, we can all relate to the, these um, feelings in a lot of ways. We're all human at the end of the day and we all have these emotions to a certain extent, these feelings to a certain extent. She goes on to say stimming also is a form of self-expression. When we're excited, we might dance, flap our arms, jump up and down, sing a familiar song, or when we're scared or nervous, we might stim to distract ourselves from what is bothering us. She goes on to say that stimming also helps us in conversation and in the classroom to focus on people who are talking to us. I'm going to say that again. Stimming also helps us in conversation and in the classroom to focus on people who are talking to us. Instead of being preoccupied and trying to focus on meeting social norms, such as eye contact or attempting to use quiet hands, if we are free to divert our eyes and move with our hands, we don't have to focus on suppression and instead focus on the information that is being said. Let's just digest that for a second. We can see now that whole body listening might be harmful to these kids when stimming actually helps them focus and learn. And if we remove that, we're trying to change basically a strategy and a tool that they have for learning. But at the same time, our goal is to help them learn. So you can see, oh, nope, something is wrong there. It doesn't make sense. Not going to work, right? Okay, so Cassandra goes on to talk about how it's almost impossible for children and especially autistic children who may have a language delay receptively or expressively and or to follow all those instructions because there's literally like 10 things you need to quiet your heart your brain your eyes your ears your hands your feet it's a lot right that's that's a lot I can't even remember the list right now as I'm trying to tell you it so that's a lot for a little kid who's already in a very overwhelming environment and trying to self-soothe and trying to learn as the best they can it's a lot so not only are we not really setting them up for success with that one but we're also in a way punishing them for autistic behaviors like stimming and she talks about how that's ableist they can't control these and they shouldn't be expected to so 
we can't really be using things like whole body listening and forcing eye contact or children to keep their hands perfectly together and then expect them to learn. And it's actually deeply problematic. Evidence shows that when children are able to move, they learn better. So allowing children to move around, they learn better. There's so much evidence to support that children moving while they're learning, like moving blocks around or moving things around or fidgeting with something or getting up and having lots of movement breaks, they're going to learn better. And we have evidence to support that. So whole body listening is really going against a lot of what we know. And now back to Cassandra's article. She talks about how early interventions based on strict compliance like ABA could teach quiet hands, um, safe hands, calm hands, table ready. It also teaches forced eye contact as a necessary social skill. It's based on the false premise that autistic behaviors are bad or wrong behaviors and that fidgeting or stimming means an inability or unwillingness to learn or something that is inappropriate and it should be stopped. So we can't be giving rewards for quiet hands um, and we can't be punishing behaviors like stimming or not complying because it's extremely harmful to these autistic children and individuals. It's teaching them to mask, hide their autistic behaviors, and it's teaching them that something is inherently wrong with how they are and that they need to unlearn that and that they need to change how they are obviously very problematic. I'm going to read um, directly one final thing Cassandra wrote. I'm obsessed with this whole article. She said, we need to foster an environment in which neurodiverse students feel accepted and the ways they feel and the ways they learn are accommodated. Neurodiverse students should not be punished for stimming and behaviors that they cannot control. And even neurotypical students may have trouble keeping still in the classroom and following whole body listening. Let students move and flap and fidget and hum and rock freely. It is ableist to expect constant eye contact or punish students for not meeting eye contact. And ableism does not belong in the classroom or anywhere else. When we listen to neurodiverse students and respect the ways they learn, we can learn a lot from them as well. So another article I read that I'm going to link below talks about let's just move towards some strategies. Like what can we do to increase attention and engagement without using whole body listening? We can allow fidget tools. We can allow them to stand instead of sit. We can allow them to sit on a chair that moves around a little bit. So like a wiggle cushion, things like that. We allow gross motor movements like songs and dances and things like that allow body breaks and personally what I would recommend hands down is an occupational therapist to really help set up the classroom so these children are set up for success Whew. so that was a lot I really hope you guys found that helpful I hope maybe you learned something new this is such an important topic and as SLPs we're always advocating for our students so it's important that we know how autistic individuals really feel about some of these practices that we may have been taught and to move away from them and to really try to work towards a more neurodiversity affirming practice I hope you guys all have a wonderful week. I have some really exciting guests coming up. I'll let you know one. It is Carly and Katie from We Talkers. They are coming on the podcast soon, so stay tuned for that. And I'll see everyone next Monday. Bye.